Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Chris O'Connor, Principal Investigator of the Heart Failure Collaboratory, and we're here today with Heart of the Matter, the official podcast of the Heart Failure Collaboratory, and I'm here with three of my very favorite and distinguished guests today, uh, Dr. Mariel Jessup, Dr. Javid Butler, and Dr. Mitch Sapka. Welcome. And uh, we're here today to talk about ways that we can improve therapeutic development. That's been the journey of the Heart Failure Collaboratory. And today's topic is subgroups. Subgroups is something that we've all had experiences with, all had challenges with, and yet we haven't really harmonized our way of approaching subgroups. And uh, I'd just like to open up the uh, discussion with Dr. Sapka and say, uh, uh, Mitch, what is a subgroup? And why why do we talk about subgroups in clinical trial development? Thank you for letting me start here. I'm sure my colleagues are also going to have intellectual things to say here. Um, and I think that we're constantly interested in a clinical trial, looking at which components or which subpopulations within the trial most benefited from an treatment or most had the best benefit to risk profile. There are often not everyone in a clinical trial responds the same to an intervention. Not everyone in a clinical trial kind of responds the same to not having an intervention. And so we really want to best understand from a clinical standpoint, who is most likely to benefit from the overall population. And this matters both to a clinician, from a clinician perspective, and also from a regulatory perspective. And we want to know, you know, are the patients that are going to receive this therapeutic intervention going to benefit and, and what is their risk to benefit ratio? and who can we best target this intervention in to get the best overall treatment effect for patients and make them feel better and live longer uh, and happier and healthier lives. So really, Mitch, what you're saying is a, a subgroup is a category of participants that have, a, have measurable characteristics, something that you can measure, such as demographics, biomarkers, genetic profiles, comorbidities. These are categories of potential subgroups that are of special interest to us that we are looking for perhaps signals of enhanced efficacy, signals of attenuated efficacy, perhaps uh, issues of safety. Marielle, what subgroups do you think all of us in the heart failure space should be looking at when we talk about subgroups as trialists? Well, I'm, I'm going to cheat and tell a story before I answer that question, and that is I've been looking at in our heart failure past, and I came across the, the original VHEP trial, and you all know this story, but it's so worthwhile mentioning. There were only 640 patients put into the VHEP one, and if you look at the characteristics of the trial, there is no mention at all about race or ethnicity. Apparently, we only discovered that years later. But it turns out, because it was done at the VA, there were 29% of Black patients that were entered into that trial, probably the highest number of Black patients in many, many, many RPA trials. Well, it also turns out, here was the very first vasodilator trial in chronic heart failure, if that many black patients hadn't been put into that trial, the trial overall would have been negative because it showed when you look back that white patients did not respond to hydralazine, isis, or bidegnitrate. It was only the black patients that did. Nevertheless, because the overall group was positive, 
it really for the first time gave hope to patients with heart failure and opened up the whole field of clinical trials. I think that's so ironic that for that first trial where there was actually diverse enrollment, it opened the door and then we closed it again on bringing in the subgroup of black Americans or, or black patients anywhere. So subgroups are critical primarily so that your individual patients can say, was someone like me in the trial? Is there is a patient that you're going to give this drug to, can they say, well, how many people like me were studied? Now that's impossible to answer in subgroups, but there needs to be at least women in a trial because, oh, by the way, they're 51% of the population. And we've done a really bad job of that too. So there needs to be some remote, at least passing resemblance of the percentages of patients in a clinical trial that is equivalent to the population where we want to use that drug. That's what I think subgroups need to be. But really great example and, uh, and well-stated. Javid, um, what Marielle's saying is that subgroups of interest, participants of interest, we should make sure we enroll a sufficient number of those patients in clinical trials so we can say something that's meaningful at the end of the trial. And then I think uh, the VHEFT is, a, is a great example for a number of reasons, but are we ever powered well enough to talk about subgroups in clinical trials? Do trialists ever think about powering studies so large that they would have sufficient power in subgroups? So, I mean, you know, it, it sort of really depends on on any given trial and what subgroup you're talking about. I mean, you know, one way to think about the subgroup issue is that you do the trial that you do. There is only so much information you have when you go into a trial, and then you learn a lot after the data comes in. So if you have a positive trial, doesn't mean that everybody in that trial benefited. So you have this issue of risk benefit, and maybe some groups it just does not matter, and all you're doing is accruing risk without benefit. And the flip side is that the trial overall is negative, but there are certain subgroups that really benefited. But overall, they were underrepresented and were in minority, and now you're calling the trial negative. So you sort of do these analysis once the trial is over. Now, as a trialist, I can tell you, you know, you love the subgroup analysis to be incredibly boring so that there's nothing there and the benefit is across all the groups and you use it in the far largest amount of uh, patient population. But when that doesn't occur and you do see the heterogeneity, then you're sort of always stuck with this question whether it's a chance finding or whether this is a real signal. And that comes to your point, Dr. O'Connor, that you know we don't power the subgroups unless and until there is something very specific that you're you know, you, you expect an interaction with diabetes or with atrial fibrillation, and you say, well, at least 30% of the patients should be this or 40% of the patients uh, are, are that. But by and large, if you look at the demographics, if you look at some of the other laboratory or other clinical characteristics, we just let the trial roll, and then however many percentage of patients with any given characteristics come, they come. And that's why we have sort of a poor man's way of dealing with that. So rather than having a p-value of less than 0.05 for interaction, we say, well, you know, if it's less than 0.1 or less than 0.2, we should really take it seriously. But the short answer to your question is that no, we, we, we really don't power for subgroups. And that's where this issue of, of populations of special interest becomes really important because you might consider powering for those groups. 
well stated. I think, in, and back to VHEFT, I think one of the wonderful aspects of it, Mariel said, they, they enrolled the patient, but they didn't pre-specify that analysis in the black patient population. But they that's where the signal was. And they did have the foresight after doing that analysis to do a prospective trial in that population, AHAF, and found a very strong single, as we all know. And what the regulators did is said, okay, you need two trials. We're going to give you VHEF with the black population because the signal was there. And that's why subgroups are important. And they had AHEF. They had the two trials. They had the consistency and they got the approval. Mitch, in the, in the world of subgroups, have we used it to tailor the regulatory labeling? Uh, I can think of perhaps we did a little bit of narrowing of the label when we looked at uh, Secubitrol Valsartan across the spectrum of EFs. It kind of says, based on the paragon showing that that very high EF, there wasn't much of a signal that they, correct me if I'm wrong, but the label kind of says across the spectrum of EFs that have a mildly reduced ejection fraction or something like that. That's exactly right. I think that is the one where it is most recent and most obvious where the label says, and I'm forgetting the exact terminology, but something to the to the effect of the effect is most obvious in those patients with uh, left ventricular ejection fraction below normal, um, below which yeah. attempts to describe this differential treatment effect or this effect modification associated with left ventricular ejection fraction as the ejection fraction increases there is a less discernible treatment effect until you get it up into the you know above normal ejection fraction where it's really undetectable and i think that we now that we have this data and a lot of other different therapeutics that we use in this space this sort of effect is probably visible in, an, in a bunch of different therapeutics, but has not made it into the label because it was not part of the label application. But this is certainly something that I think is going to rear its head more frequently now that we have bigger data sets across broader ranges of these predictor variables, such as ejection fraction. We're faced with the dilemma that when we look, go back at praise one amlodipine and heart failure reduced ejection fraction, highly statistically significant interaction on the stratification, that subgroup, we really thought something was going on, but it was in the non-ischemics. We thought it really was going to be, the action would be in the ischemics. Went to the FDA. They said, not good enough for standalone. Do another trial. Same sites, same protocol, same baseline characteristics, same geography, absolutely neutral result. Javid, I know you're 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 getting all, all the uh, the the tough questions. Why did that happen? Yeah, well, so so that's the whole issue about chance finding, noise, multiple uh, mm -hmm. testing, and getting a false positive result. And that's why I think that we need to confirm our findings. So obviously, you know, if it is only one study, but your p-value is 0 0.000125 or something like that, then you can be pretty darn certain that if you repeat the experiment, your p-value is going to be less than 0.05. Uh, but if you're at, you know, 0.02, I mean, the chances that you're going to hit at less than 0.05 is not that high. And that's why the two experiment rule exists. And, and I think it's a wise thing to do. Because on one hand, we definitely don't want eligible patients to be deprived of therapy. 
but newer therapies are costly and almost all therapies have side effects. So we just want to make sure that when we prescribe the therapies, we at least have some reasonable comfort that the patient will benefit from it. So I think that the first study in which the non-ischemic signal was uh, found was a chance finding. And when a fully powered study was done, we could not replicate the results. If a trial is positive, though, Mario, we look at Galactic HF, we look at the Patiracin study, and then you see a sub, you say, okay, well, it was sort of marginally positive, but it was a large study in, in the case of Galactic HF. And then you see amplification of signal in a subgroup. It's a large subgroup, the low EF. Thousands of patients, I think close to a thousand deaths or events. That signal's magnified. Why couldn't we go forward with one trial and uh, given the trial's positive and narrow it to the subgroup that has a very strong signal? Marielle? We can, it's just that, that that's very costly. And most companies that make these therapeutics are not interested in that. They want to be able to say, this is the widest group of patients that a drug. But I, I think it goes back to the fundamental problem that the Heart Failure Collaboratory is also trying to address, which is we really don't characterize, or the word that people are using is phenotype, our patients going into trials very well at all. So we always have to scramble and go backwards and say, ah, it was the patients with a low EF or women with a higher EF or people with an NT-proBNP that was elevated or people that didn't have an NT-proBNP. I mean, we always go back and come up with an explanation, as you've already said. But what would happen if, you know, we, we, we took a few characteristics and decided on each patient that went into the trial, what phenotype do they exist? Then we've got a little better opportunity to understand as we go forward. I mean, we spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on these trials, and at the end, we have so many questions. Now, will that approach answer all the questions? No, but we'll, we'll be smarter at the end. We always just feel like, huh, that was a negative trial, or huh, that was a positive trial. Now let's do it in this group of people, or let's do it in that group of people. It would be nice to know a lot about the patients at the end of the trial. Well, you're ex exactly right. I mean, that is one important lesson is that we should do deeper interrogation of marginally positive, neutral, negative trials to understand subgroups of potential benefit, to understand the phenotypes better. But it's uh, it, it's just a challenge for these sponsors. Uh, Javed, you're leading an investigation of Verisigwat. Okay, it's a positive trial. It actually is a proved drug. And now you're leading a trial called Victor in which they're going perhaps into the, a sweet spot of enhanced efficacy, which was in that uh, more stabilized, a little bit lower natriuretic peptide population. And if everything falls the way that Victoria showed, this, this should be a win. But could we have averted that and just said, you know, the, the sweet spot is the sweet spot? Yeah, so, I mean, if you look at the development of therapeutics for all of the agents that we use today, right, ACE inhibitor, beta blockers, MRAs, RNAs, SGLT2 inhibitors, all of these drugs have been sort of tested across the spectrum. Sometimes we start at the more 
you know, difficult end of the spectrum, uh, like ACE inhibitors and MRAs, we started with consensus and RALs, and those trials were positive, and we came to the less sick patient populations. With beta blockers and SGLT2 inhibitors, we did the opposite. We started at the less sick end of the spectrum first, and then we went to the sicker patient. So you want to cover sort of all the, the spectrum of patients, and I think if you haven't studied any specific given patient population, uh, then where do you draw the line or, on, on adjacency? If you do a trial in uh, HEFREF, uh, do you say extend it to mildly reduced, all heart failure, hospitalized heart failure? So this issue of adjacency and expansion of indication is, is really tough. And I think that in as much as it is costly and time-consuming to do multiple trials, I think that probably is the best thing to do uh, because we have not always been successful. You know, ACE inhibitor beta blocker, you know, tends to work in post-MI patients. ARNI trial was negative. It did not. ARNI trial in severe heart failure in the LIFE trial really did not show much benefit. Uh, so I think that that doing trials in populations that have not been studied, rather than extending the indication on the basis of logic, which may be true but untested, is a little bit of a slippy slope in my opinion. If we, uh, Mitch, had done the Victoria trial with Vitality and expanded and said, okay, we're going to study a new drug across the entire spectrum of EF, but we're going to stratify by REF, uh, PEF, and you get a nice signal in REF and you get nothing in PEF, and you get this sort of, maybe it gets diluted out, a borderline p-value, maybe it's for the overall thing, it's 05, it's 06, it's 04. Would the, would the agency be willing to approve that subgroup in one so, trial? So there and maybe this of... is what's happening. Maybe this is the barrier. We have to separate and do two trials, longer, more money, uh, totally against what we're talking about in the HFC. Because I think you might say, that's a hard one. Well, so I have two answers for you. The first is that um, there are clear FDA guidance on what constitutes substantial evidence for a single clinical trial. It was actually just released um, by the agency. Um, and the level of evidence that you need to really get away from this two clinical trial metric. But I think really what it comes down to is pre-specifying your analysis in a way that, and this is going to get into the statistical weeds, preserves your alpha spending, meaning preserves your overall shot on goal into one hypothesis that you are testing uh, to a level of statistical certainty that is expected uh, to generate evidence that would lead to approval. And so, you know, it's not just enough to pre-specify a secondary outcome, a secondary endpoint, or uh, really even to uh, pre-specify um, what your, you know, how you're going to perform sub-analyses. It's really to say my primary hypothesis will spend my statistical shots on goal in this way, and it will look at these two subpopulations separately. You can, in fact, design a trial that would be similar to doing two trials where you enroll the entire spectrum of, say, ejection fraction and take two shots on goal, both with smaller alphas, that would be similar to taking one shot on goal for each clinical trial. And then, uh, you know, that would be essentially the same output. And so I think that that is probably uh, the way that these things can could go forward and could get managed in terms of taking an appropriate 
and statistically robust pathway to doing these sorts of analyses. And I think that pre-specifying not only the, the shot on goal, but also the directionality, not just that you are going to stratify based on ejection fraction, but that you actually predict, say, that the drug will be more effective in a low ejection fraction population, because we can always imagine that if you choose a low enough ejection fraction population, you may actually argue post hoc that, oh, it's actually those patients were too sick, that I wouldn't expect them to respond. So you need to say, I expect that we'll see a benefit, a better benefit in this population than this one. Um, and that needs to be built into your statistical testing plan. Really well said. So as we wrap up here well, for the audience, the lessons, you're designing a trial. You got all these characteristics, subgroups that you want to look at at the end of the trial. How do we prioritize that? What are the mechanisms, Javed, of how we can prioritize subgroups, subgroup analysis. I think Mitch alluded to it a little bit in the alpha uh, spend and the weight, but how do we do it? Yeah, so it depends on, you know, how you're feeling about uh, any given particular subgroup. So for instance, when the deliver trial uh, was coming out, uh, they really felt that they need to study the six, less than 60% EF as a separate group. So that was part of the primary endpoint and they split the alpha. That's one way of doing it. That's a special circumstances. If you really feel strongly about some subgroups, you can make it a secondary endpoint with hierarchical alpha protection. That's another approach to do it. But I think the simplest thing is to just really think through the study, the mechanism of action, the patient population, pre-specify the analysis, and perhaps give some order and some hierarchy to your subgroups as well. And if you feel that something is important enough, as you hypothesize that this group will benefit more, just just make it into a, a, a alpha protected secondary endpoint because then you can claim label if the primary endpoint is met. Uh, the issue comes up is that when you do it as a secondary exploratory analysis, not pre-specified, not alpha protected, there is just no way to know whether or not uh, you have had a chance finding. And I think at that point, it becomes a very responsible thing to do to repeat the experiment and make sure that this is not not noise, but this is a real signal. Well, thank you, Javed, and uh, thank you, Mitch and Marielle, for great conversation on subgroups today. And uh, there'll be more of this conversation. We know this is a, a very important topic for the collaboratory and for therapeutic development. But for today, uh, part of the matter, what counts in, in HFC and therapeutic development, I want to thank you, and uh, let's continue the charge, Javid, to make trials better. Thank you. Thank you.